Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, if you have gotten used to the visions of dreadful beasts and rising horns, Daniel is going to shift gears on you today. We've come to the third vision of chapters 7 through 12, and this vision is quite different from the previous two. In fact, it is as much about faith as it is about foretelling future events. In fact, there is a prayer of faith that begins Daniel 9 that we read this morning that stretches over half the chapter, and that's what we're going to look at today. Prayer of faith. The Bible says a lot about faith. It tells us to walk by faith, to live our lives by faith and not by sight. It tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. Jesus rebuked his disciples several times by telling them that they only had a small amount of it, oh ye of little faith. And yet in another place, he told them that even a small bit, the size of a grain of mustard seed, could could move mountains. There was a man in the New Testament who once responded to Jesus' statement about faith by, by saying something that you have echoed before, I believe, help my unbelief. Meaning he had it, but he also knew that he lacked an adequate portion of it as well. But probably the most significant reference to faith in the Bible is in Genesis 15.6, which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or as Ephesians 2.8 restates it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, according to Scripture, is the only way to attain salvation, and salvation being our greatest need, it is probably the greatest passage, faith in the work of Christ alone. But but how much faith does it take to pray? I mean, when you pray, you're speaking to someone that you cannot see, you're, you're asking for things that you do not have yet, and you're doing it based on what is written in a book that was written long before you and I were around. But as you do, as you pray, you just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one you're speaking with listens. And what you seek, if it is good, he'll give you. And that the book that tells you to do that can be trusted. This is an inner witness for a believer. You, You know that. Well, what kind of faith would it take to pray for God to restore his people to Jerusalem? While praying from a pagan land um, where God's people have been for 67 years, still under pagan rulers, without a single stone in Jerusalem moved yet. But as you pick up a copy of God's Word, it says in 70 years He will deliver His people to the holy city. What kind of faith would would that take? Would it be more than asking for daily bread? Not, Not really. What would you pray in that situation? Well, that's what we're going to see from the book of Daniel this morning. And as we do, we're going to learn about the faith that we need to pray for things that God has promised in our own lives. How much faith does it take to pray for God's mercy and salvation toward a wayward spouse or or child for God to grant them the repentance and to not take things into your own hands because you know that God is sovereign even over salvation? How much faith does it take to pray and believe that that God is actively doing something good? Um, 
working his good purposes when your life is currently in a, in a wreck, when you, when you can't see anything other than devastation, but, but God says to trust him or to love your enemies when, when he says he'll work all these things together somehow. How much faith does that take? And what do you pray in those situations? Well, the purposeful message of chapter 8 was a vision about more to come. God foretold of a time when, when more oppression would come again, once again to Israel. And the point of chapter 8 is that he will limit it to the familiar themes of Daniel. God knows the future. He sets up kings and takes them down. And he rescues his people. But in chapter 8, God also limits the reach of, of evil. His sovereignty not only controls when his people suffer, but how long they, they suffer. Chapter 9 that we're going to look at today is the third vision that Daniel received, but it's more like a prophetic revelation. It contains no beasts or, or horns. It's an unveiling of the future in response to Daniel's prayer. It contains one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible, which is Daniel's 70 weeks. It's, that prophecy is mentioned in the New Testament many times in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2, three times in the book of Revelation, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13. Point being, if you mess up the interpretation of Daniel's 70 weeks in, in chapter 9, it will affect your understanding of all of your eschatology. We'll get to that next week. But from Daniel's perspective, this revelation that he receives is specifically related to Israel. You remember chapter 7 and 8 is about the four kingdoms that, that, that are coming, which are Gentile kingdoms, and how, how Israel is, is part of that. Well, chapter 9 focuses specifically, exclusively on Israel, and specifically on, the, on her Messiah's arrival. In fact, one of the keys to to this chapter is that the covenant name of God, Jehovah or, or Yahweh, is mentioned seven times in this chapter. And, and you say, well, that's the capital L-O-R-D, when you see that in, in your Bible. And you say, well, I see that all over my Bible. But the significance of, of this is this is the only chapter that, that that name for God is used in all of the book of Daniel. It's all condensed in this one chapter, chapter 9, and it's used seven times for repetition. That's because the heart of the covenant, which that's what that name represents, is that the Messiah would come just as God promised to, to his people. I mean, you could summarize the theme of chapter 9 as God always keeps his promises, whether that is to restore Jerusalem or that it is to bring forth the Messiah. And that truth is the basis that God always keeps His promises, that truth is the basis for all of our prayers. We pray because God has promised. And He always does what He says. In fact, all of the new revelation that, that we'll see that Daniel receives comes from, or comes as a response to Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer, though, is based on what God already promised, what He already revealed in His Word. Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah whenever he starts to pray which is how the chapter begins. And Daniel begins with a model prayer of faith that prompts God's revelation about his future coming, and he prays in response to reading Scripture. I mean, if the Lord's Prayer is a model to follow for the New Testament, then Daniel's prayer here is surely an Old Testament model, for in it he teaches us how to seek God. It provides a believer a pattern to approach the, the th throne of grace, as one said, especially when, when you've sinned, because 
the bulk of this is about confession. Uh, the chapter as a whole has three parts. Daniel's reading of Jeremiah, where he talks about the 70 years of desolation for Jerusalem in verses 1 to 3. There's Daniel's intercessory prayer then in verses 4 through 19. That's as far as we'll cover today. And then the third part is when the answer comes in Revelation given to the angel Gabriel in verses 20 through the, through the rest of the book. And the scenes of this, of this narrative follow the, 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 same, the same pattern. Daniel's personal devotions get brought in to get to eavesdrop into Daniel's personal devotions. And the second scene is actually listening to his prayer of faith to the Lord. And then the third scene is the prophetic revelation of Gabriel. Um, we'll only cover the prayer today, and as we do, we're going to see four components to effective prayer that, that honor the, the, the Lord. They're, you'll see in this model prayer that effective prayer is by faith, verses 1 through 3. It's in adoration in verse 4. It's accompanied with confession in verses 5 through 14. And then it's for the bringing of God's glory, verses 15 through, through 19. If you didn't get those, you'll get them as we, we go through. Let's look at this first one. The first component of effective prayer is, is it is by faith in, in God's word. And effective prayer has consistency. It has a common source, and it requires contrite preparation. Look, if you would, at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. And we're immediately told that this scene is a new period of time with a, with a new king. It's, it's after the events of chapter 5 when Belshazzar was removed, the, the finger writing on the wall. It's also after the visions of chapter 7 and 8 because you remember they occurred under Belshazzar's reign. And it says here it was during the reign of Darius, who, who was made king of the Chaldeans. And that phrase is important. And that tells us that, that this is not Cyrus, but, but someone who was made king or governor over this region. And we've already been introduced to this king in Daniel chapter 6. This is Darius, the, the king of the lion's den. So we know the time frame whenever this, this happens. It's about 538 B.C. So Daniel would have been about 80 years old whenever he, he prays this and receives this, this revelation. He's been in captivity for about 67 years. And so this is clearly toward the end of his life. And we don't know for sure, but this event likely happened after the lion's den when Daniel was delivered by the, the Lord. But what we do know is that we find Daniel doing exactly what led him in, into the lion's den in the first place. He's having his personal devotions. It's the way that Daniel enters Babylon and the way that he exits it. Daniel came into Babylon refusing to compromise the law of the, of the Lord or defile himself and and he has been consistent his entire life. He was consistent no matter the location, whether in Jerusalem or Babylon. He was consistent no matter who was reigning, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar who acknowledged the Lord, or Belshazzar who mocked God, or Darius who liked Daniel. He was consistent no matter the outcome or the cost. I mean, he went to prayer when he was assigned the king's meat in chapter 1. He, he went to prayer when he needed to know the interpretation of dreams in chapter 2 and chapter 4. He went to prayer when a law was passed against prayer. 
that meant sure death or the lions did in chapter 6. And here he is still having his personal prayer time at 80 years old. Effective prayer, the kind of prayer that is used by the Lord, is learned by consistency. That's what you see in Daniel's life. It's mastered over time and through trials. It's not like instant oats that are microwaved. It's more like good leather that softens with use and forms a beautiful patina over the years. This is what the disciples are asking Jesus to teach them whenever they they wanted to know how to pray. Teach us how to pray. They weren't saying, give us words to say, like a new mantra. They say the way... He prayed. That's what they want to know. They saw that. He had, con- he had consistently related to God, and they wanted that same kind of, of depth. And if you've been around somebody who's spent years walking with the Lord, you know exactly what I mean. You listen to their prayers, and they sound different from someone just starting out, don't they? I mean, I mean it took the same grace to save both the mature saint and the one just starting out. They're praying to the same God, but, but there's a depth to someone the prayers of someone who's walked with God over time and been through trials. They're tested. They're weathered. They have an experiential knowledge that undergirds everything they say. And that kind of prayer only comes through consistency. They're consistent in reading God's Word, consistent in gathering with God's saints, and consistent in asking the Lord for their needs. And that's how consistency is developed. You read God's Word and... You do it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. You gather with God's saints, and you do it this Sunday, and you do it the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and you do it when you feel good, and when you do it when you feel bad, and you, you do it when you don't want to, and you do it when you do want to. And, and you consistently ask the Lord for, for your needs over and over and, and, and over. And just like lacquer, one, one layer after the, the other, after the other, after the other, and there's a depth that, that forms to your, to your prayer life. And, That's how consistency is developed. Substantial prayer comes from seasoned saints that have been seeking God over time, and that's exactly what Daniel is here. But there's also a common source that that you look to. Look, if you would, at verse 2. It says, I, Daniel, observed in the books the, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So verse 2 tells us that Daniel's not only praying, but he's reading his Bible and his devotions. He's possibly prompted by the change in rulers and the events that are taking place. There's a new king. So Daniel looked at the only place that has the answers, the, the Bible. And Daniel's specifically looking in the scroll of Jeremiah. I mean, we do the same thing when, when some circumstance takes place or we, we see the America the disintegrating. We, we go to the Bible and we find general things about this is what it looks like for a society that forsakes the Lord and otherwise. But, but Daniel has something specific here. Because of Daniel's faithfulness to God and his Gentile rulers, I mean, you remember he's been elevated in the kingdom. He has a copy of Jeremiah's scroll, which was a great privilege. And he's looking particularly at how long Israel's captivity would last. Not a general promise, but a specific promise. And so not only do we know that he's reading Jeremiah, but we know the exact passage that... Daniel is reading. Because there's only two times in the book of Jeremiah where the prophet tells about Israel's restoration and mentions the 70 
weeks or 70 years. And that's specifically in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And Daniel understood that this was a moment of significance. Babylon has been overthrown for the first time since Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And Jeremiah not only predicted, Daniel heard Jeremiah preach, and Jeremiah not only predicted that the Israelites would go into exile, which he knew why they were there to begin with in 605, but but he also knew that Jeremiah said that their captivity would last a distinct period. Look at what Jeremiah 25 says. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the the king of Babylon and that nation. And now the king of Babylon is gone, declares the Lord. For their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. Even more specific, look at what it says in Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. And then the passage that you likely know from Christian t-shirts, which have absolutely nothing to do with us, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, and to give you a future and a hope. Then look at what else it says. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search with me for me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore. So the prophet Jeremiah had been taken captive by Jews, rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. He was carried off to, to Egypt, and in this prophecy... Jeremiah says that it would be 70 years until God's judgment would end. And the vision of Daniel 9 that's coming happened in 538 B.C., about 67 years since Jerusalem was first captured. That means there are three years left, which is why Daniel's praying. And Babylon has just fallen. And Jeremiah 29 says, I know the plans, specific plans that I have for Israel. And it's a promise to, to God's children that in 70 years his plans would be fulfilled. But, and I want you to recognize that, that Daniel believed Jeremiah's prophecy and he took it as Holy Scripture. But I also want you to notice that he took it literally. He didn't think that this was allegory or symbolism. It was the 70 literal years. And there would be a real literal fulfillment. And it's been 67 years. Even though Daniel himself used symbolism to portray the prophetic events. And did you notice that this also contains a command? What God promised to do, but then God gives a command. Then you will call upon me and will come and pray. And then you will seek me and find me. And I will be found. And so on this basis, Daniel is praying by faith. He's simply doing what God commanded him to do. He's not trying to change God's mind. He's praying exactly what God promised. Daniel let the Bible drive his prayer life. And I hope you do that as well. But don't miss the faith part. 
I mean, the king of Babylon's gone, but nothing can happen in Jerusalem yet. I mean, God promised that he would restore Jerusalem and, and that he would do it in a specific amount of time, and that time was almost up, but nothing had happened in, in Jerusalem. In fact, if you're sitting there with Daniel, you're thinking there's three years left before, before Jerusalem is going to be restored? We've we got a new king, and he doesn't seem to be favorable in that direction. Think of the faith required to pray this, to obey God from Babylon without a single stone moved in Jerusalem. I mean, Daniel was exiled as a child in the first wave in 605 B.C. He saw more deported in 597. He heard of the atrocities whenever they, they just demolished the temple in Jerusalem in 586. They totally destroyed everything. He lived his entire life under pagan rule. Daniel has not worshipped in the temple or in Jerusalem since he was a young boy. His parents are dead. His relatives are likely dead. He's in his 80s. And yet he believes what God says. With nothing but stones and rubble and dust and memories. The glory of the temple had long departed, but, but Daniel believes it will return because God said it would. And so he prays. I wonder what part of your life or what part of a person's life that you know is in similar condition to the temple in Jerusalem. Demolished. Maybe they're lost and far away, devastated by sin. They're, they're, they're dry, former life, nothing but stones. They've been wandering aimlessly in their sin, maybe devastated by their own actions, feeling like there is no hope. And yet you pick up a copy of the Bible you look at them in that condition and you read where God says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or all that the Father gives me will come to me. Or call upon me and I will answer thee. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Or, or, or my little children, I have you that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, that's where faith to pray is found. Not in what you see or what you feel, but in what God has said. Because what He said He'll do. It is faith that you exercise when, when, you, when you pray those prayers, and it is faith that you need to pray them. So go to the Bible, ask for faith, and then pray, and pray until you can't pray anymore, because God works His plans through, through means. But you must also prepare to seek the Lord in, in that way. There's some contrite preparation here before Daniel ever begins to launch in the, the body of his prayer. Look at verse 3. He says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel, having been consistent throughout his life and, and is looking to the Word of God, he now begins to prepare for prayer. Did you know you, needed to, you need to do that? You need to prepare to pray. I mean, he doesn't just jump in or, or, or blurt things out. He prepares his heart to pray. I mean, I understand you can throw up a prayer to God as you're driving down the road or, or you, you don't have time to, to do something, but, but normal, consistent prayer requires preparation. Daniel said he turns his attention from God's Word to seeking the Lord in prayer. So he says in verse 3, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer. He's reading, and now he turns to the Lord. 
He's been listening with his ears, and, and now he looks with the eyes of his heart. Preparing to pray is directional. You turn toward the Lord. You, you, you turn away from your feelings, you turn away from what you see, and even your own thoughts, and you look squarely and resolutely toward God. Toward God. Just like Jesus did whenever he says he set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. It's undaunted determination. And that is what will remove the billy goats that trample your prayers with all their budding. I know you say this, God, but. I know you promised to do this, but. I wonder if you'll do it for me. Uh, I know you won't put more on me than, than I can handle, but you don't understand my weakness or my circumstance. God is a shepherd of, of sheep. And sheep may fear and may falter, but they turn their ears toward the shepherd's voice and they listen whenever he calls. And John chapter 10 even says that his sheep will hear. So prepare by turning your heart toward his face and, and then prepare by removing distractions. Look at verse 3 again. So I gave my attention to the Lord, turned toward the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, he, he says. Daniel gave his attention to the Lord with, with fasting. I think fasting, frankly, is just a good way to say that Daniel removed distractions. I mean, fasting is not something that you do to get God's attention. Fasting is something you do to give God your attention. You understand the difference? I mean, fasting is, is simply giving up a normal routine or a, or a normal meal in order to give your attention to God during that time. I mean, it's not a deal that you make with the Lord or a work that you perform. Like, God, okay, I, I, will, I will give up food all day if you'll just listen to me. That's not biblical fasting. I mean, God's not impressed, quite frankly, how many pepperoni pizzas you forego or whether you drink diet soda and not water whenever, whenever you fast. I mean, fasting is for you, not Him. And if you want to seek the Lord, you, you can't do that with your phone in one hand and the TV on in the background. And if you can't get that type of unhurried, focused time, then, then you need to, to cut something out to dedicate your, your, yourself to the, to the Lord. You need quiet where you can focus and... And once you've turned to the Lord and you remove the distractions, then, then you humble yourself. That's what the sackcloth and ashes is all about. It says, with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Daniel prepared himself with an expression of humility. Sackcloth was just coarse material, kind of like burlap, and placing ashes on yourself was a sign of mourning or grief. It's the opposite of oil. You remember oil in the Old Testament poured on someone in celebration or... Or a sign of joy. Ashes meant that you're humbled, that, that you're low. It was symbolic. And, and when you pray, you must approach God in humility. You turn toward Him, you remove distractions, and then you, you humble yourself. And that's the way you want to come. Because the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. And you don't have to change your clothing or put dirt on yourself, but you do need to change your heart sometimes. You must apply that perspective, that humble perspective, in here, not, not out here. Lord, I'm lowly and needy. Hear my prayer. You don't wear robes of pride into the prayer room. You adorn yourself with unprivileged lowliness. And when you do, then you can pray. What do you pray? 
Well, Daniel shows us that next. And he begins by adoring God. Here is this second component. Its prayer is in adoration of who God is. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. So after Daniel prepares himself for prayer by turning toward the Lord and seeking and removing the distractions, Daniel now focuses on God. After he expresses faith, he then exudes worship and he worships by reminding himself of of who God is. And he uses six titles here for, for God that God uses for himself to remind him. He's adoring the Lord. He calls him Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, the great God, the feared one, and a, and a covenant keeper where he uses many titles to describe that, that same aspect. And each describes something about the Lord's character. And he begins with this this covenant name of God. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital. The Hebrew word Yahweh, or Jehovah, it's the first of the seven times that, that God's revealed name is used. This is the name that the Lord gives him Himself when He's asked by Moses, who, who should I say sent me? You remember what the Lord says. He says, tell them I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Second, he calls him my or the God. I pray to the Lord, my God. The Hebrew word El or Elohim, literally the God. Singular nature of the Lord and that the fact that there's only one. Daniel says, you are the only one. I, I approach you exclusively. You see what Daniel's doing in his prayer life? He's saying... This is who you are. This is who you revealed yourself to be. There's none, there's none but you. There's no plan B. There's no place else I can look. Daniel's not double-minded and therefore unstable. Thirty calls him Lord, not, not all caps. Look at verse 4 again. Alas, O Lord. Notice that one's not in all caps. The Hebrew word Adonai. It's a title of reference. I mean, now Daniel establishes the way that he relates to God. You're the covenant God, you're the, you're the God who reveals himself, and, and you, you're the Lord. I'm coming to you as a servant. The word's preloaded with authority and submission. God is above, you're below. Daniel doesn't come to God as an equal, but as someone who's a humble, humble attendant. Reminds himself of that. You remind yourself of that in prayer. Who am I to even speak to you? And you do that because he is the great God. Fourth, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Literally the great one, Hagadol in Hebrew, which means fortress or, or tower. Daniel is saying, you are a high tower, Lord. You are the fortress of strength. You have power to do what I'm asking. And you're one to be feared, which is just the fifth word. He says he's an awesome God, or literally, I think better, the feared one. He says, God, you, you, you are to be revered. 
frankly, this is an aspect of God's character that we've lost in, in modern times. We, we say roller coasters are awesome. And, and then we, we hear that, this word about God and we, we say, well, we know God's way more awesome than a roller coaster, but we still kind of have that comparison in the back of our mind. We've made God more like a divine rescuer who is always there whenever we call to come and save us. God, get me out of this mess. We blasphemously call him the big guy or depict Jesus as some sappy weakling. When the Bible calls God a consuming fire, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Never forget that God is dangerous. He's not to be trifled with. There's a reason in Mark 4, whenever Jesus calms the storm, that the disciples are even more frightened after that than whenever the storm raged, because the only thing scarier than a raging storm outside of the boat is realizing that God is inside of the boat and you're right next to Him. Isaiah and John fell on their faces at the vision of the Lord. God told Moses to take off his shoes when he heard God's voice from the burning bush. Peter wanted Jesus to get away from him when he got a glimpse of who he was. Just a miracle. And God is all that and more, but the same God has made a merciful covenant with his people. If you would at verse 4, Here's the sixth. He calls him a covenant-keeping God. I prayed to the Lord, my God, confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant in loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. He is one who is merciful and loyal and compassionate. He does what He promises. This is the most common expression of God's character in the Bible, and I think it's the Lord's favorite. It. He is a God who has hesed, or loving kindness. We have no English equivalent to this word, which is why you'll see it translated in so many different ways in, 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 in your English versions. The Old Testament word is always richer, no matter what English word that, that we come up with. His hesed is unconditional. It means once God has placed Himself in covenant, He'll never break it because it's based on His own promise, and God can't break it because... It's not based on you, it's based on Him. And it's a gracious and compassionate and loyal covenant. I say it's God's favorite because it's exactly how the Lord reveals Himself in Exodus 34. One of the most significant passages in all of the Bible. This is how God reveals Himself. Your ideas and imaginations of who God is or what He's like, take the Lord's word for it. These are His words. This is how God reveals Himself. God tells Moses He will proclaim to him who He is. God will describe Himself. He will proclaim what is like, His own name. And when God does that, this is what He says. This is who I am. I proclaim who I am. You don't have this verse. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abandoning, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity 
in sin. But he says, I'm also dangerous. I will by no means clear the guilty or allow the guilty to go unpunished. And in light of that, in light of adoring God and reminding himself of who God is, Daniel has some confessing to do, and I would say that you probably should too, right? The third component to effective prayer is it's with confession, specifically confession of sin. There's four parts to this confession. It's a confession of sinfulness. There's a contrast. It does between Israel's unfaithfulness and the Lord's faithfulness. There's a consideration then of God's character, and then there's a confirmation of the punishment that they're, they're in the midst of, confirmation that, of the punishment that is a confirmation of the Bible. Look at verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants or prophets who spoke in your name. And while God says, or while Daniel says that, that God was faithful, Israel was not. And just as he used six names to, to adore God, he, he now describes six ways that Israel sinned, to describe the, the, the full orb sin of, of, of the nation. He covers all the areas where, where they failed the Lord. He said they had sinned, which, which means missing the mark. It's a, it's, they, they omitted things. And the Bible says that we're to love the Lord our gods with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and, and we haven't even loved Him a little. We fall short of that command. And, and they'd also done wrong and had iniquity there. The word iniquity, they're twisted and bent. It's the inner crookedness of a, of a sinner. That's the bent part that can't be straightened out. And they had been wicked. It meant someone who was guilty of a crime against God or, or, or man. And fourth, he said they'd rebelled, which is surely a crime. And they deliberately turned away. Number five, a, a stiff neck. They had a stiff neck. They continually turned away from the Lord, not toward him. And they refused to listen, which is the sixth way that he describes it. He, even when God sent them the Bible or a prophet, they paid no attention. How many sermons did you sit under? How many faithful believers witnessed to you before you finally turned to the Lord? You're no different than Israel. And a person begins to slide toward sin by failing to do what they should. It's typically where it begins. They, they omit things. Then they allow the iniquity or the lust, the, the, the crookedness in their hearts to grow, which then actually this leads to actual sins or transgressions where they actually commit acts. And then when, once they're there, they want less and less of God's Word or what He has to say. I mean, think about it. Whenever you were in sin, did you want to be in church? Did you have an appetite for God's Word when anybody shared it to you? Neither did Israel. Daniel is confessing all of this about, about Israel, and he contrasts that to the Lord. Notice the contrast here in verse 7. Contrast of faithfulness. Israel was unfaithful, but God was faithful. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. I mean, part of his confession, Daniel contrasts God's righteousness with Israel's open shame. And and, and it's emphatic. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To us, open shame. 
I mean, it's like if you, you hold you up and us up. I mean, you're here and we're, we're not even on the map. We like to compare ourselves to other humans, don't we? Oh, I mean, Israel was way more faithful than the Babylonians. I mean, I know Israel did wrong, but I mean, they're not as bad as the Babylonians. I'm a pretty good guy. I just drink a beer every now and then. I mean, I'm, I'm not like fill in the blank. Well, you and I and everybody on the planet, we're not compared to each other. We're compared to God. You, O oh Lord, are righteous. And we're unrighteous when we compare ourselves to God. We compare ourselves to others because we can always find somebody worse, and we think that justifies us. But Scripture says someone who is truly repentant will look at God and say, O oh Lord, you are righteous. But open shame belongs to me, and I look to you. And the fact that the Lord is very different from us is actually where we find hope whenever we realize we're sinners. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Here's where he calls into consideration God's character. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. To the Lord belongs, literally, mercies and the forgivenesses. The Hebrew is intensive. He's full of mercies and he's abundant in forgiveness. But we, on the other hand, even in light of that, we have rebelled. He's confessing now, so he notes Israel's sin, but it's the character of God that he'll appeal to, this character, that he'll appeal to in just a few verses when he asks God for mercy. And even though they'd walked away from his word and... Plugged his ears, plugged their ears. God would still have mercy. Finally, he confirms the punishment that Israel deserves and says this is actually a confirmation of the Bible. Look at verse 11. He says, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out upon us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Look at verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers. And look at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses. And verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds that he has done. We have not obeyed his voice. Daniel says that as, as Israel had forsaken God's law and, and broken covenant law, they were experiencing the very curses that God promised. God told them what would happen, and it was happening. And, and even that was supposed to be meant as a goad uh, to, to lead them to repentance. When God says, be sure your sin will find you out, and God is not mocked whatever... A man sows, that shall he reaps. And whenever that comes upon your head, when those consequences come, they're to remind you that God is true to His Word. And if He's true to those words, that your sin will find you out, He's also true to the words which says, if you confess your sin and forsake it, you'll find mercy. I mean, don't think that those passages that promise grace and mercy don't apply to you because you're a sinner. (laughs) That's exactly who needs those passages. But don't think that the ones that promise judgment won't apply to you. Because they will. And unless God makes an atonement on His own, we have no hope. 
But it says he does that because it brings him great glory to do so. The fourth component to effective prayer is that the answer is for God's glory. Look, if you would, at verse 15. He says, Now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. Daniel now turns to asking God for something. I mean, all of this has been preparatory. In fact, it will be preparatory all the way up to the, to the very last verse. He asks God for something, and he does it based on God's history. He asks it for God's reputation, and he pleads for God's intervention. He starts by getting historical. Notice he reminds God of the Exodus. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. It's like saying, Lord, we've been here before. (laughs) You ever said that to God? Lord, I've been here before. We've been here before in our sin. In our need. Remember when we were in Egypt and you delivered us? Lord, do it again. That's what he's saying. And you have to go back to the Lord more than once for for deliverance. And that history reminds you if he did it before, he can do it again. But he makes this plea based on God's reputation. Not Israel's worth. Notice the basis which all he he asks all these things was for God's glory. Look at verse 16. O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have been reproached. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. And for your sake, O Lord. Daniel appeals to God not on the basis of Israel's worthiness, but on the the sake of God's. Eleven times he uses that pronoun, your Your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, your people, verse 16, your sake, your desolate sanctuary, verse 17, the city which is called by your name, your great compassion, verse 18, for your own sake, your city, your people, your name, verse 19. God's reputation was Daniel's primary concern in his prayer. Israel's deliverance was just a byproduct. God's reputation and His glory is the purpose of your salvation. Your salvation is a byproduct of that. It's for the the sake of His name that we go. It's for the praise, to the praise of the glory of His grace, Ephesians 1 says. Don't get wrapped up in your unworthiness when you're asking the Lord for forgiveness. You're not worthy, but but forgiveness has nothing to do, or nothing nothing to do about your worthiness. That will not keep the Lord from granting it because God gets His own glory from saving and forgiving sinners. And He does it because of His own worthiness, not ours. And so Daniel finally pleads for God's intervention in four ways. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. And then he repeats, for your own sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people which are called by your name. So here's the crescendo of Daniel's prayer. It's, it's in one verse. This is, I mean, he, he does all of this labor in prayer to get to the point, now he's asking God for something. Everything up to this point is groundwork, and in staccato fashion, he finally asks the Lord, and he asks him four things. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen. And Lord, take action. So did it happen? 
God always does what He promises. Did God answer and do what He promised in Jeremiah? And did He answer Daniel here? Indeed. Daniel was too old to return himself, but he saw the answer in Ezra 1. Ezra chapter 1, you have verse beginning in verse 2, tells of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who allowed the Jewish people to return. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all this kingdom, also saying in, in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with you. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And now his people are there too. Daniel lived at least two years past this, because in Daniel 10, 1, it says in the third year of Darius' reign. And after that Ezra, the floodgates opened after Daniel's prayer. The temples were built and the walls of Jerusalem are restored. And, and even more importantly, the Messiah would come 483 years to the day, which we'll see next time. But all of that happened because God keeps his promises. And that truth, that God keeps His promises, those promises recording in His Word, is the basis for our prayers. So the question is, what has God promised you? Are you praying for it? Are you praying by faith? Are your prayers driven by Scripture or by what you see, what you feel? In prayer, is there adoration? I mean, do you direct your prayers to the Lord by uh, reminding yourself who he is, not who you think he is, who the world says he is. If you do, that will drive you to confession. Do you confess your sin? Say, God, I'm sorry, uh, you know, whatever. Or do you actually contemplate, do you see yourself in light of, oh, Lord, you are righteous. Do you see your open shame? And do you realize that whatever God does, whatever you ask him for, it's ultimately for his glory. And your good is just a byproduct of that. And oh, he loves to answer the prayers for the good of his people. Let's pray. If you need faith to pray, open God's word. Because that's where you'll find the wood for faith's fire. Father, as we bow before you, we thank you for your truth. Even now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we turn our eyes toward you and what you have done. Lord Jesus, what you accomplished on the cross, the righteous one. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are righteous. And we are not. We hide ourselves in you. We, we look to your work, your finished work alone on the cross. And because of that, we're saved. We thank you that you, you heard our prayer when we called upon your name, and we thank you that you continue to hear, and we thank you that there's nothing that we do or could ever do that will separate us from the love of Christ. We pray that you be glorified even as we take communion now. In Jesus' name.
Amen.